You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. Well, happy Easter, Easter clothes and lilies. And apparently ham's not the, uh, the, the Easter dinner of choice now. Anybody having ham today by any chance? Uh, that's a few of you traditional. How many of you guys uh, barbecue happening today? That's, that's my kind of uh, food right there. I know someone uh, in a band, they're having steaks today. Anybody having steaks today? I'm always in the mood for a steak, always. Well, I love Easter, and I love it because uh, around the world, this is the, the single message that every Christian is proclaiming and preaching and teaching, uh, whether you're in China, whether you're in Africa, South America, it doesn't matter whether you're Catholic or Protestant or Orthodox, everywhere around the world, people are speaking and proclaiming the very message of Jesus Christ. Hey, Dave, did you just take a picture? Can I see, can I see the camera? <laughs> Thanks. Oh, man, this is a 35-millimeter camera, right? This is like one of the old schools. This isn't even digital. This is, this is one of those kind of cameras that, that you don't even know how the pictures turned out until you got the film back, right? I remember getting my very first uh, camera. Um, you know, you mind if I take, take some pictures? All right. Hey, Dave, smile. All right, don't forget you guys up here. I love these cameras because uh, who knows what's going to turn out. <laughs> you know, you, and, and it was like a miracle when, when they did uh, development in three days. And then I thought it was the future when it was one hour developing. Remember that? I was like, one hour. Whoa, it's the future. Right now, you're like taking like a million of them, right? And you're not really deleting them. So you've got a, a server that's loading up. But it's something about these cameras I always thought was interesting is how many times I accidentally opened up the, uh, the, the camera and ruined the film. That ever happened to you guys? Uh, this, it can happen on this one too. I think this is the, oh, dude, I'm, I just, how many pictures had you taken? Seven. About seven. All right. And then the five I took or so. So, you know, something about, these type of cameras is that they're easy to mess up and you know, actually no worries, this is, you might've figured out this is my camera. <laughs> All right, this is a way of getting it up here. So uh, cameras are interesting. What we're gonna do is we're actually gonna use this camera today to give you some snapshots of what happened those three days that Christ uh, went from the cross to the tomb to alive. But something interesting also about these uh, cameras is that when I was a kid and I got my very first camera like this, it's amazing uh, and how disappointed I was when I took a bunch of pictures only to find out uh, there was no film in it. It was empty. <laughs> Has that ever happened to you guys on, on some of the cameras? I'm like, well, today uh, there is film in it and we are going to take some snapshots and uh, we are going to take some pictures, but we're going to take a look at some pictures of what happened on the cross that day uh, and what happened after the cross. And we're going to kind of walk through some of those snapshots of those three days. Now, 2,000 years ago, God walked through the doorway of humanity. God became a man. His name was Jesus. He walked the earth for 33 years. And after 33 years, um, he was the Messiah. He is the Messiah. He was the Messiah before he came to set us free. He came, but they did not expect this. They didn't expect the cross. When he died, it, it blew their mind. It was not what they expected in any way. It was not what they were looking for. And last week, we kind of walked through all the stations of the cross. The last 
24 hours of his life? Well, here it was a historical carpenter who claimed to be God, but was crucified. That's the facts. The facts are he's a real person who lived in the history of life. He has a footprint in history as a real person, a real life in a real place. And that he was crucified, sources outside of the Bible tell us that. And the Bible tells us that he rose again from the dead. But outside of the Bible, the, the, the sources of history tell us that the tomb is empty. So what we know for a fact is that Jesus is a real person who lived, who was born, who had a following, who died on a cross, who was buried and that tomb is empty. And there's a lot of speculation about how that tomb became empty. There's a lot of people who don't even think that he died at all. There's uh, different theories of the, of the crucifixion of Jesus. And these are some of the responses to people uh, when it came to what happened that day. And the first one is this. Some people think that Jesus swooned. That means that he kind of fainted. There was a 1965 book called The Passover Plot, and the author um, put forth the theory with very loose, very, very loose information that he said that Jesus planned his own death, planned his own arrest, and that he uh, instructed his disciples to drug him, and that he swooned or passed out, and then uh, Joseph of Arimathea, who is, who is knowledgeable in the essential oils, the ancient essential oils, was able to resurrect or receive resuscitate Jesus and that he didn't actually die. He just swooned. And this theory also, also assumes that he ended up moving to Egypt where he married a priestess and became a political warrior in Rome and then a monk in his later years. So that's a pretty convoluted story. And then there's the lookalike theory. This theory is actually pretty popular in Islam. And basically what they teach is that Jesus was not actually killed, but it was a person made to look like Jesus. That perhaps it was Judas who died on the cross or Simon of Cyrene that when he helped Jesus carry the cross, that they got switched and that Simon was actually uh, put on the cross and that's the plot or the plan or another disciple that did it. And then Jesus came out of the grave saying that he rose from the dead, but actually it was part part of a plan and they look like was killed. And then there's the twin theory, and this is probably the dumbest. 1995, a guy came forward and said that Jesus had an, an identical twin named Hirom and that he uh, was separated at birth and he supposedly had these loose facts about it and they weren't facts at all. And that, that his twin was actually the one who was led to the cross and who died and that the real Jesus came out of the grave. The Watchtower Society, which are more known as the, popularly known as the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Watchtower theory is that there were the Jesus, uh, that he actually did die, but that he didn't rise from the dead physically. He only rose from the dead as a ghost and that his body was a loner. And so, yeah, he might've died, but he didn't rise physically from the dead. There's the Jewish theory. And the Jewish theory is that his body was stolen by his disciples and that there was a lie spread throughout the region that Jesus was alive, but he was actually dead and that the disciples had lied about it. And that's the theory that 
most Jewish people have today. And then there's the Gnostic theory. And the Gnostic theory was made popular by, uh, maybe you remember the movie, The Da Vinci Code a few years ago. It's based on Gnostic writings of cult early groups uh, 300 years after Christ. But they uh, suppose that Jesus never really died at all and that somebody else died. They don't know who it was, but not Jesus. He actually escaped and married Mary Magdalene and eventually moved to France. And in the Gnostic theory, they believe that the line of French royalty leads back to Jesus and that all of their royalty is Jesus' blood, which is kind of silly in itself. Now, the extent of some of these to try to explain away the cross and to explain away the resurrection would be funny if it weren't believed by so many people. There are a lot of people that believe these assumptions or these false stories, these, these, these made-up versions of the cross. Listen, here's the reality. Either this is fiction, fantasy, a fraud, or the greatest feat of all time. See, there is a decision that we are going to have to make about the cross and the resurrection today. And either it is a, a made-up story, mythology about a character in history, or it is the greatest, most significant turning point in the history of the world. And if it's true, then these grave clothes are the centerpiece of everything in our life. Now, this is obviously a sheet. But if this is true, then this changes everything. And without the grave clothes, then the cross is just a sad story. How did he get from there to here? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to take some snapshots of three days with three people. There are three of Jesus' very best friends. And by the way, this whole thing was part of Jesus' plan. He says this in John 10, 11. He says, I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He's talking about his crucifixion that is to come. And he says, and no one takes it from me. He says, I lay it down of my own accord. And I have the authority, Jesus said, to lay it down and the authority again to take it back up again. And Jesus told his disciples again and again that this would happen and that this power he received from the Father. He told his disciples that he would die and he told his disciples that he would live. They didn't get it. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at what happened after the cross to that tomb, those three days, through the eyes, snapshots through three friends' lives. Jesus actually had three best friends. I don't know if you knew that. Jesus had three best friends, Peter, James, and John. Jesus had about, a, at any given time, two to 3,000 people following him all the time. In some cases, there were up to ten to 15,000 people around him while he spoke. But he had on average a thousand plus people with him. He actually commissioned 300 of his disciples. He gave uh, 72 of them authority to go cast out devils. And then he poured his life into 12. And then he really had a close knit friendship with three, Peter, James, and John, who he took with him almost everywhere. Of these three, James and John were brothers. So that's kind of a cool thought. You got Peter, who's a, a very close friend of James and John, and then James and John, two brothers. So Jesus has these guys go with him everywhere. So they're going to give us a very unique perspective. 
from day one. In fact, James is the very first disciple that he ever called. When he walked up to that boat and he called them to follow, James was the first to respond. So we have here now his closest friends. What happened those three days? Jesus poured his laugh into them. They knew him like no other, heard his words more than any other. But on Friday, everything seemed empty. All the words that he said, everything that was uh, proclaimed, all seemed empty. So let's take a look at those three days through three friends. Day one, Friday. Day one is Friday. We walked through the cross extensively uh, last week. Jesus is crucified. He physically dies on the cross. Now, for those supposed assumptions that Jesus never truly died, I want to give you seven fatal blows of Christ. These are seven fatal blows recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four of the Gospels tell us that there was no doubt about it. Jesus was dead. Now, I want you to know something, that these guards that were assigned to kill Jesus, that's what they did for a living. They were paid to kill people for a living, and they did it a lot. And if anyone didn't die, then they would have to die. So if Jesus didn't die, if any of their, their victims, if, if none of the criminals that they put on the cross over the past years didn't die, they themselves had to pay the price with their own life. So to assume that Jesus somehow escaped this and that these soldiers who had killed hundreds and hundreds of people on the cross somehow let one guy slip through their fingers is ludicrous. But let me give you seven fatal blows of Christ. The first one was his face. As he was arrested, he was beat to a pulp, fists, beard, rods, uh, causing concussion, nerve damage, and credible blood loss. And then scars two and three were his back and his chest with razor-sharp bones, uh, cat of nine tails whip. He was flogged and beaten just short of death, lead balls and bones and knives and sharp items. At the end of each one of those whip nails were dragged into his flesh, pulled apart his, his chest and his back blows three and two tore him apart. And then there was the head, blow four was to the head as he was beaten again and again with rods and a crown of thorns with one and a half to two inch thorns was crammed into his head. He's currently now in critical condition. He is bleeding out. And then from there, he is forced to carry a 12 pound wood beam through the streets to his own crucifixion to a place called the skull. Now at this point, he was already dying, but they weren't done yet because blows five and six were his hands and his feet as seven inch spikes were driven into his hands and his feet, lacerating his nerves. In fact, the word excruciating is the word, is the Latin word that means out of the cross. And that word was created to describe the incredible amount of pain that Jesus went through. And his final blow was the side. At this point, he had already given up his life, but the soldiers to ensure that he was actually dead, about a sword about as wide as our hand was rammed into his side and his heart had burst and water and blood poured out of his side. He was dead. These were seven fatal blows. There was no doubt about it. Jesus did not swoon. He didn't pass out. He wasn't drugged. There wasn't a trick. There wasn't some kind of illusion happening. And right at the end, he shouted, it is finished. Paid 
and full. It is complete. This is what he came for. This is why he came. But you see, without the next part, this is just a sad story and a wannabe event. What we have now is we have that Jesus is taken from the cross and his three closest friends are responding to the cross. And this is actually the three responses that we often have to Jesus as well. So let's take a look at three responses from his three friends. Peter, many of you guys have heard this story, but while Jesus was being beaten and crucified, Peter turned away from Jesus and he denied he knew him three times to the point that he even cursed out a little girl. The Bible says that there was a young maiden that came to him and said, you're one of the 12. And he cursed her and said, I do not know the man. He denied Jesus and he walked out on Jesus. This is a story of broken promises. And maybe you can relate to Peter in this way. Perhaps there was a time like Peter, you were on fire for God. Perhaps there was a time like Peter who said, Jesus, I will never betray you. I will never run away. I will live for you and I will fight for you till the day I die. Maybe that was you when you were a young person, when you were a teenager. Maybe that was you a year and a half ago, two years ago when you said, Jesus, I'm all in and I'm not going anywhere. But today you've walked out on Jesus. At one time you were willing to give your life, but the pressures of life and the peer pressure around you has gotten to you. And now you live with guilt of broken promises to God because you have walked out on him and denied him just like Peter. And then there's John. And John was a unique disciple in that he was the only one that was at the cross when all the others ran away. Now, John, however, he did not stand at the cross with Mary and Mary, the two Marys. He didn't stand at the cross in faith. He stood at the cross in doubt and confusion. It says this in John 20, all the way up to the resurrection. It says, for he, John, still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. He saw Jesus on the cross and said, it's over. It's gotta be over. He was there, but he wasn't present. He doubted. Listen, maybe some of you are like John today. You're present, but faithless. And I think of how John was there and he was looking at Jesus. He's acknowledging what he did, but he had no faith. He had no faith in what Jesus was doing in his life or what Jesus was doing. And some of you, you're here today and you're present. And some of you, you're pretty consistent. You come, you know, a lot. You know, you're here most Sundays. And, but you're here, but like John, you're present but faithless. You're here, but, you're not, but your heart is not. You show up and you're going through the motions and your faith is absent. But you're present just like John at the cross. And then the third best friend is James. James, the brother of John, the first disciple to follow Jesus, his absence speaks loudly because nothing is said of James at all in any of the gospels about where he's at. Jesus gave the care of his mother to John who was present, not to James, the older and first disciple. James is AWOL, he's missing. And some of you are like James, you're nowhere to be found. I'm so glad you're here Easter morning. I'm so glad you're here. But the rest of the year, you're AWOL. You're missing. And just like James, you're nowhere to be found. Perhaps like James, 
you're avoiding church or avoiding Christians. Maybe you've been hurt or you're hiding or you've been turned off or you're disappointed or maybe your faith is just dried up. But like James, many of you are missing. If we could take a picture, if we could take a picture of that day, of that moment, of those guys, if we could track down James and get a picture of his face, if we could find Peter and get a picture of him as he hears that rooster crow after he denies Jesus three times and curses out a little girl. If we could find John and see him at the cross and looking at Jesus in disbelief, what would we see? Maybe you have broken promises of regret and guilt like Peter, or maybe your body is present, but you're not as here like John. And maybe you're AWOL, not only with church, but maybe you're AWOL, absent without leave from your wife and from your kids and from your family and with God. At one time, like the disciples, you said, I'll be there, I'll be faithful, you can count on me. And there's pictures and moments in your head and your mind. You can remember those moments as if it was yesterday, but now, where are you? John describes what happens next in John chapter 19. Two secret followers show up in John 38, of uh, John chapter 19, verse 38. It says, afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy follower of Jesus, and he was also, it says, a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders. This was a very prominent leader in the community who was a follower of Jesus. But yet he kept it a secret because he was afraid of how it might affect his influence in the community. He asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. And Pilate gave his permission, so he came and took Jesus' body away. Now what they did is they, they removed Jesus off the cross. They lowered him down, perhaps with a pulley that created out of a sheet or a garment. They lowered him down. Now, after they lowered him down, they would have had to pull the nails out of his hands and his feet. As they pulled the nails out of his hands and his feet, or possibly just pulling his hands out of the nails because the nails had to stay. They weren't theirs to keep. This was Roman property. And all the nails were reused for the next crucifixion. So they were often just pulled out, yanked out, or left on the cross until the next crucifixion. And as they pulled him off, it says that Nicodemus, another man who was a secret follower of Jesus, he was, a, he was a part of the Sanhedrin court. He was in the room when they convicted Jesus to death. But he's also a man that came to Jesus at night in John chapter 3 and wanted to know what it meant to be a disciple. It says Nicodemus, the man who came to Jesus at night, also came. Now here's what I have to say. Where are the others? Where are the 12 that he walked with for the last three and a half years? Where's even John? John's not mentioned at this moment. Just Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, two guys who were the secret followers of Jesus. The guys that were on the down low were the ones that showed up on that day. They were the only ones there. They're the ones that took Jesus' body. What normally happened is that the bodies were left on the cross, sometimes for days, sometimes they were removed and just thrown into a common grave area. But oftentimes they were left on the grave, left on the cross rather, for the birds and the animals just to pick at them and eat at them until they got around to removing them. And Joseph, the secret follower, said, I can't let that happen to Jesus. So he bargained with Pilate, let me have his body. Please let me have his body. 
and I'll put him in my tomb. It was a brand new tomb that was nearby. And he says, I'll put him in my tomb because I can't see Jesus being torn apart and being thrown in a body pit. So they took him off the cross and Joseph took him to his grave. Look what it says this. Nicodemus brought with him 75 pounds of embalming ointment made of myrrh and aloe. 75 pounds. That's a lot. Jugs, jars and jars of, of oils convinced that it was over. And this would also would have included 20 pounds of linen. So as they took Jesus off the cross, they had 75 pounds of, of uh, ointment and oils. And then they had uh, 25 pounds of linen. It says, together they wrapped Jesus' body in a linen cloth with the spices, as is the Jewish custom of burial. So what they did in that custom is that they would have washed Jesus completely with these oils. 75 pounds worth of oils, they would have washed all of the blood off him completely. So he was blood free when they wrapped him. They would have anointed his body with these oils afterwards. And then they wrapped him in white fine linen. And they folded his arms over his chest. They closed his eyes, kissed his cheek, then took another linen and wrapped his mouth shut. As you die with your mouth open, maybe you've heard or seen, you know, people putting coins on the eyes. You know how they put coins on the eyes? It's because when the eyes open, the coins wait, the eyes closed. And so they had to wrap the mouth shut. They had to force the mouth shut, wrap it shut. They covered his face, then wrapped his head as well. They placed linen over his face. They wrapped his head and mouth shut. They kissed him. Now, Jewish laws prohibit that they do anything after the sun sets because Saturday was the Sabbath, so they had to hustle. They had to be in a hurry. This is how Mark says it in verse uh, 46 of chapter 15. So Joseph bought some fine linen or some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, placed it in a tomb, cut out of a rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And at that moment, as they rolled that, that, uh, that stone over the tomb, Knots began to sit in their stomach. The reality began to set in. The feeling of loss, the feeling of pain and regret began to settle in. Now, some of you might be wondering, why would they roll a stone? That's kind of weird. Why not just bury him? Here's what they did in Jewish uh, burials. is that They would actually have these, these tombs that would have shelves on them. And what they would do is they would wrap these bodies... And then they would check on them throughout the year. After about a year, they would unwrap the bodies, collect the bones, put them in a bone box, an ossuary, and then they would put them in the shelves. And then that was the way that they could conserve space. They would mark the, the box with their name and put them in the shelves. So what they were doing with Jesus is they were preparing him for a year-long journey to becoming dust and bones. So they rolled that stone over the tomb, knowing that they would come back from time to time to see if the decomposition was happening. So these grave clothes now was a, a wrapping of their dreams, a wrapping of their hopes. It was an end to everything that Jesus had promised. And it seemed like at this, I would imagine at this point, it seemed like everything Jesus said was just empty. Everything he said about life, about hope, about who he was just seemed like empty promises. That was day one. Jesus is physically buried. He is dead. First day in the tomb. 
Friday night. Day two, it's the Sabbath. It's Saturday. And at this, uh, they weren't to do anything. The tomb is uh, sealed by the Romans. Why, why did the Romans seal the tomb? Well, the Bible tells us that the, that the Sanhedrin court, some of the Pharisees came to Pilate and said, uh, the disciples are going to steal this body and it's going to cause a big ruckus. There's going to be riots. It's going to be the, the something you've never seen before. Trust me, you need to seal the tomb. So they would seal the tomb and they would put the official seal of the Roman Empire in seal, in wax seals all over it. If those seals broke, then that person would be executed. They sealed the tomb on Saturday. Not much is said about the disciples. Not much is said at all. In fact, it's the Sabbath and they're pretty quiet. Matthew 27 records that Jesus was sealed because of their fear out of him being stolen by the, uh, the Pharisees did it, but little is said. And I can imagine if I was a disciple, if I was Peter, James, and John, total shock, total depression, dazed and confused, maybe even a little angry. You know, I'd be a little angry. Jesus, I gave up three and a half years of my life. I believed you were the Messiah. A little anger, a little depression, a little fear, because what if they're next? What if the Pharisees hated them just as much as Jesus? Fear, depression, anxiety, worry, shock, hopelessness. They left everything for Jesus. Now they have nothing. They have no home. They have no money. They have nothing. What kind of pictures, I wonder, would have been taken? What kind of faces? Maybe you have been hopeless. Maybe you have been at the end of your rope where you feel like everything has failed, all of your dreams have fallen apart. Maybe it was a marriage that fell apart. Maybe it was a relationship that ended that you thought was gonna be the one. Maybe it was something that happened to your kids. Maybe it was the loss of someone prematurely and all those dreams, all those hopes, all those plans, gone. Your face might've looked a lot like their face if we could have had a snapshot of that moment. They might've left town out of fear, but they couldn't go anywhere. And you know why I think maybe they stayed there? It's because they love Jesus and they just want to be close to his body. You know, if you've ever lost someone, and many of you have, and you've ever gone to that funeral, you just don't want to leave the room. You know, you just don't want to leave the room. You don't want, because there's kind of an end that happens when you walk away, when that casket is closed or when that body is taken out. I had my mother uh, dedicated to science when she had passed away. And I just remember sitting with her in that hospice room after she died for three or four hours until they came and got her. And then I walked all the way to that vehicle as they put her in that vehicle and drove away. I'm like, I didn't want it to end because that was the end. That was the closure. And I could imagine the disciples, they didn't leave because they just want to be close to Jesus and close to each other. They lingered. They lingered close to Jesus. And I think when you feel attacked, when you feel defeated, when you feel buried, when you feel broken, when you feel those promises were broken and that those moments in your life are filling you with emptiness and you're disappointed and you're cornered and you're afraid, linger close to Jesus. Just linger close to Jesus because Sunday is coming. Day three the third day in the tomb, there is an empty promise that Jesus fulfilled. As the sun breaks the dawn, the Bible tells us that there was an earthquake and it shook the ground. Now the Bible gives a lot of different descriptions of what happened that morning. And next week, we're going to take a look at some of them a little bit more specifically because a lot of people think there's a lot of contradictions in those stories. 
They're just different perspectives of the same event, giving different angles and versions of the story through different eyes. But what happened that morning is this, and we're just gonna look at part of the story. Next week, we're gonna look at some of it in detail and basically where is Jesus now and what happened after the resurrection. So later that morning, it says Mary and Mary and Salome, two Marys and a woman named Salome, all three women disciples. Verse one of Mark 16, when the Sabbath was over, that's Sunday, Sabbath was Saturday, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, which by the way is the disciple that's a wall. How about that? And uh, Salam brought spices so they might anoint Jesus' body. They wanted to finish and, and just love on Jesus. His body was dead. Not knowing that the tomb had been sealed, they had thought to themselves, well, who's going to simply roll away the tomb? The tomb. So verse 2, very early, the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? And I want to ask you a question. Perhaps that's your question today. Who will roll away the stone from my tomb? Who will roll away the stone, that barrier, that demo? of dead dreams, that obstacle, that dead marriage, that lost relationship, sickness, bitterness, depression, grief, hopelessness. You're buried in that tomb of darkness in your life, of despair. The dark tomb is sealed and you might be wondering, who will roll the stone away? Who can break me free from this heaviness that I'm living? You can't do it. Who will? Verse four, but when they looked up, Mm, everybody look up. <laughs> so, when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Not so that Jesus could get out, by the way, but so they could get in. So they could see that he was not there. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Luke and John tells us that this was one of two angels that were there. Verse 6, don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, who was dead, but he has risen. He is not here, but go tell the disciples and Peter. I love this. I want you to focus in on that. Tell the disciples and Peter that he, Jesus, is going ahead of you into Galilee, and you will see him just as he told you. Now I want to give you three responses that Jesus gives to those three friends. Peter, James, and John, we have three responses to Jesus. What does Jesus say to each of these? I love Peter's response. Uh, I love Jesus' response to Peter because what we find later in the story, we're not going to hit it today, but Jesus takes Peter aside and begins to restore him and love on him and speak to him him and challenge him and encourage him. But I want you to know that this is what Jesus says to the Peters in this room. He says, I have not given up on you. That passage there where it says, go tell the disciples and Peter. Now, the gospel of Mark is believed to be the transcribed notes as dictated to Mark by Peter. So to many, the gospel of Mark is actually closer to the gospel of Peter as given to Mark. Mark is believed to be the author who was speaking to Mark. And I imagine as he gets to this part, as he's telling Peter, sorry, as he's telling Mark the story, I can imagine Peter gets a lump in his throat. He says, man, the angel said, go tell the disciples. And Peter, he said, go tell Peter, 
I'm not done with him yet. I'm not giving up on him yet. You know, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5, it tells us that Jesus met privately with Jesus before he met with the disciples. Outside of that encounter with Peter, where he asked him if he loves him three times, it's not recorded in the Bible. It's not recorded in the gospel. It's just mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, 5, where it says that he had a private conversation where he met with Peter and then to the disciples after he rose from the dead. It's like he said, Peter, I still love you and I'm not done with you. All of heaven saw him fall. God wanted Peter to know that he's not finished with him just like God's not finished with you. Maybe you have denied Christ. Maybe you've run away from your childhood faith. Maybe you've walked away from that decision that you made when you were a young man, a young woman, and now your life has gotten chaotic and you're feeling guilt and shame and, and heaviness and you're feeling like Peter who's kind of not worthy of Jesus and walked down on Jesus. You know what Jesus says to you today? He says, I haven't given up on you. I haven't stopped loving you. I'm I'm here for you. And if you will come to me, if you will listen to me, if you will follow me, I am still with you and I'm still for you. I'm not finished with you. And then it says this, when Peter and John heard this, John 20 verse three. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. So what happens is these women, they, they, go, they run all the way back to where the disciples are at. And they said, the tomb is empty. And two guys jump up. They tell them, Jesus is alive. And he said to get the disciples and Peter and two of the disciples jumped up and it was John and it was Peter and they took off running for the tomb. Verse three, so Peter and the other disciple, that's John, started for the tomb, man, it's a foot race. Who's gonna make it, the old guy or the young guy? Peter was believed to be an older, but not the oldest, but John was considered the youngest in the whole group. He was uh, historically considered to be roughly early 20s, maybe even upper teens. So John was a young guy. So John's running and he's running. Who do you think's gonna win? Well, the Bible tells us it's the young guy. It says both were running, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And he, John, bent over, looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. It's like he froze. He saw the linens. He didn't know what to think. Is he alive? Was he stolen? What happened? And then it says this, then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and he just went in and he went in and he grabbed the tomb, the grave clothes. And it says, he saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. And the cloth was folded up by itself separate from the linen. Is that significant? Yes. Finally, the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside and believed. I want you to, want you to follow this. This is the response as we're gonna find that Jesus has with John, the one who's present but faithless. He tells John, don't stop believing because I still believe in you. Don't stop believing. One of the greatest songs ever written, I think. It paints a picture of people who are broken and hurting, but God is not done with them. God is not done with you. Some translations say that the linen was folded. Some say it was wrapped. 
Actually, it's the same word. The scene is this. Some have speculated that that folded uh, head linen represented like a, a master coming back, but there's no historical uh, truth to that be beyond the year 2005, actually. But what we do know this is that when they saw this, it wasn't just like a jumble of stuff, just, you know, grab the body, let's go. What they saw was a tomb that was in order. They saw a tomb of someone who had got up, was in no hurry, folded his linens and walked out of the tomb. This was no burglary. This was no snatch and grab. This was Jesus alive. For three short years, they walked with him and they watched him open blind eyes, deaf ears, raise the dead. Then they watched him die and their dreams were wrapped in grave clothes for three long days. But when they saw in that tomb, his garments of linen neatly folded and set aside in two separate areas, they knew that Jesus was alive. He was not stolen. Something here had happened that was not what we had expected. But when they saw that empty tomb, they knew that he was back. And this is what it says in John verse 19 of chapter 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were in fear for the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. It's him saying, he walks through the walls and says, que pasa? Jesus walks through the walls. I want you to know this something. They were hiding out of fear for their life. He tells Peter, Peter, I'm not finished with you. And then he says to John, John, don't stop believing because I believe in you. But this is what happens. This is kind of what we see with James. James, like the disciples, was hiding. Jesus walks through the walls. It's as if he's saying to James, James, you might be missing. You might be hiding, but I can find you. Some of you, like James, you show up on Christmas and Easter and you're hiding the rest of the year. Jesus can find you. He can find you. He knows where you are. He's still pursuing you. He's still chasing you. You can't avoid me, God says. Jesus says, you can't hide from me. You're not too far from me. Wherever you are, I am there. You might be missing, but I'm still right there with you. Maybe you have drifted so far from God, you wonder if God's even alive anymore or real, if this whole thing is, is legit. Jesus says, I know how far away you are and I know how your heart is so far away. But Jesus says, I'm right here. And if when you leave this place, he's right there. And when you get in your car, he's right there. When you go to your home, he's right there. And he says to his disciples, you might be missing but I can find you. Luke 24 picks up the story. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking that they had saw a ghost. And he said to them, why are you frightened? Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? He says, look at my hands and look at my feet. It is, it is I myself. Touch me and see a ghost for a ghost or a spirit does not have flesh and blown bones as you have seen I have. Now this flies in the face of a lot of beliefs, a lot of, a lot of cults and organizations that believe that Jesus only rose as a ghost or as a spirit. Jesus says, look at me. 
I'm not a ghost. I'm not a spirit. I'm not an apparition. I'm not a figment of your imagination. This isn't mass, you know, some kind of um, uh, uh, hypnosis. Touch my hands. Touch my side. I'm alive. This is flesh and blood is not, you know, a spirit. It is me. It is me. I'm, I am the one who you saw three days ago. I'm alive again. And then he says this. I love this about Jesus. He says, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. He's physically alive. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, you know, we sing that song, I can't believe. That doesn't mean you can't believe. It's like amazement believe, right? That's what's happening here, he says. He says, they still did not believe it. It's like, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to wrap their brain around it because of the joy and amazement. I love this. He asked them, do you have anything to eat? (laughs) That's so much like Jesus. You know, Jesus loved to eat. In fact, one of his appearances after the resurrection, he made breakfast for his disciples while they were at work. And guess what his favorite food was? It seemed like almost every time he ate, he wanted fish. So if you don't like fish, then you don't like the food that Jesus liked. I'm just kidding. My daughter doesn't like fish. Anyhow, the the younger one. So he says, do you have something to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate it in their presence. He's not a spirit. He's not a ghost. He's alive. He came back from the dead. Throughout that day and for the next 40 days, Jesus appears to his disciples multiple times. They would touch him. They would laugh with him. They would eat with him. He appeared to them, gave them instructions. At one time, he saw over 500 people at one time after his resurrection. Then the Bible says he gave us a final challenge, which we're going to talk about next week. And then he ascended into heaven and said, he's coming back. And the angels appeared and said, as the way he left, he's coming back. So get to work because that day is coming. So where are you today? Maybe you're like Peter, running from God with a life of regret and shame. Or maybe you're like John. Maybe you've been raised in church and you're present today, but you're without faith and you feel spiritually dead. Or perhaps you're like James. You've checked out and you're drifting away. Listen, Peter's grave clothes of regret were left behind in that tomb. John's grave clothes of doubt and confusion were left behind in that tomb. And James' grave clothes of disarray and drifting were left behind in that tomb. You know what, Peter? He became one of the great leaders of the early church. In fact, the very first day that he preached his first message, 3,000 people came to Christ that day. In the second chapter of Acts, we see that leading the church, he was so committed to Christ that when he was finally condemned to death and they began to crucify him like a common criminal, unwilling to be crucified in the same manner as Christ. He wanted to be crucified upside down. What would cause a man want to want to be crucified upside down? I'll tell you, it's a second chance. It's forgiveness. It's grace. John, he went on to be a great leader in the church. He began to preach the gospel, to define theology in his letters and in the letter of John. And he was entrusted with the mysteries of revelation. And then James, James, who was the very first disciple of Jesus, became the first disciple to die for Jesus. As Acts records that he had his life taken as the first disciple to die. He was so committed to Christ as he preached the gospel. All of these men who had a response of running found a God of grace and forgiving. So here's the thing about this camera 
and the film in this camera. Sometimes life just overexposed. But here's what God does. He takes a new life. If you'll open up your heart, he'll change the pictures. Listen to this. And he will give you a new start. And all those images of your past and your life, of shame and regret, disappointment, all those broken, empty promises have a new picture, have a new start and a new beginning. This is what the cross is. Actually, it's beyond the cross. This is what this is. The king is risen. This is what it is. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, therefore, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. This old life, it's right there. The foot of the cross. God has not given up on you. God still believes in you, and God knows right where you are. Let's pray. God, I thank you, Lord, that right now, Lord, there are possibly uh, three people here, Lord, three types of people, Lord. Uh, some who, like Peter, have maybe given up on you, and, and they feel bad about it, and they've walked out in their faith of, uh, of their younger years or years ago. And there are some here that, that are present, but they have no faith. They're present, but their faith is not. And God, I know there's also people here that have been running like James their, their whole life, God. But God, you know right where they are and you love them so much and you're here right now. If you're here right now, I want you to know that God can do the same for you what he did for Peter, John, and James. That he can take your life, that overexposed, broken life of yours and give you new pictures, a new future. So if that's you today and you would like that new life, that new future, that new hope, if you would like to have new pictures in your photo album of your life, then, then let's pray this prayer together, especially those of you that would like to say yes to Jesus today. What a, what a great day it would be to give your life to Jesus on Easter. So I want to give you that opportunity right now. Maybe right now you're, you're feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit moving and touching you. Will you pray this prayer with me? Let's all pray together. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. You gave your life for me so that I could live. And you rose again. The tomb is empty. God, I give you my empty life. Take my shame, my regret, my disappointment, my fear. God, take it all. Renew my faith. Teach me how to walk with you. Fill me with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Happy Easter. Because he lives, you can live. Because he is alive, you can be alive. Thank you for listening to the Living with Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.